I'll be reading Fire in the Mountains by Ella Bismarcked on Archive of Our Own. Chapter 1 I'll do it. Inji froze, fingers curling into a fist at his side, and didn't turn around. Shoto froze too feeling his own eyes widen in shock at the words that had just come from his mouth, at the fact that he had actually stood up, followed his father out of the room, and dashed after him all just to say, he'd do it? He would do it. Him, Shoto Todoroki. He would... Inji finally turned around and fixed Shoto with an expression so scathing, Shoto had to fight to keep his chin raised. You'll marry the barbarian king. Shoto blinked. Yes. Inji laughed once, cold, sharp, and bitter. Shoto swallowed. Who do you think would be more suited to play double agent with a country of warmongering savages? Fuyumi, he drawled, making the name sound as ridiculous as he felt right now. Or me. Inji rocked back on his heels and then crossed his arms over his chest. Shoto felt very small standing before him. He always did. When Inji looked down at him over his beard like that, even though Shoto wasn't a child anymore, he was easily within an inch or so of his father's height, which made him a relatively tall man, all things considered. But he lacked Inji's wide shoulders and thick arms and corridor-filling ego. And what makes you think that he'd agree to that? There was amusement in Inji's voice now. It made the hair on the back of Shoto's neck stand up. Shoto just looked back at Inji as coolly as he could and said, These people value strength above all else, do they not? Mm, yes. Then who is the more appealing prize? The world over knows Fiyumi is only as good to you as the person you can marry her off to. Natsuo is your heir, and I'm... Shoto's mind spun. Your biggest pride, your biggest disappointment. Instead, he stepped back and held up his hands, palms up, elbows bent at waist height. In the left, he conjured a tiny orange flame. In the right, he called a plume of frost. Inji's face darkened now, from amusement to true consideration. Offer your worthless, nearly powerless daughter, Shoto whispered hating every word he was speaking and hating even more that he had to speak them. And he'll laugh in your face. And if he'd prefer her? Inji asked, musing this time. Shoto swallowed, stomach sinking as he realized this was working. And it was his own neck he was risking. He dropped his hands to his sides. A man like that doesn't prefer a figurehead to a warrior. He's got his own women, if he's so inclined. And I hardly think, Shoto added, feeling the color drain out of his face when he realized what his father was implying, what it meant for him. But Inji interrupted him. You think you're a warrior boy? Shoto narrowed his eyes. Yes. 
because it sounds like you just offered to be a whore. Shoto clenched his jaw, felt his teeth slide, but held his tongue. Inji just stared at him, looking smug and amused again, reveling in Shoto's simmering fury. It never took long for Inji to conjure this feeling, impotence and helplessness and pure loathing. If you send Fuyumi, if you can even get him to agree to it, she'll die, Shoto said finally. It was something of a gamble. Shoto wasn't sure he should reveal his real reasons for offering to go in Fuyumi's stead. It was almost as likely then that Inji would send her just to spite him. But if there was a chance Inji tolerated any one of his children more than the others, then it was Fiyumi. She'll be caught, she'll be executed, and you will have another war on your hands. A shadow darkened Inji's brow. Shoto asked quietly, When have you ever known her to tell a falsehood? Send her to him and her whole life will become one enormous lie. She'll crumble. You know she will. It's not in her to deceive. Oh, but you've got that, don't you, boy? Inji hissed with an awful, taunting scowl. Shoto just narrowed his eyes, lifted his chin, managed to be as insolent as was possible while still maintaining perfect posture and a neutral, deadpan expression. And if they catch you? Enji said finally, and Shoto understood why he'd truly chosen Fuyumi. Of the three heirs to Enji's throne, Fuyumi was the most expendable. She wasn't the heir, or the strongest. Shoto took another step back from Enji and lifted his hands again. Flames sprung into his left and flared without warning into a tower so huge it reached the ceiling, while from his right, ice spiked into a series of spears that cracked on the stone wall beside him. Inji's arm jerked up to protect his face, and then he scowled as Shoto shook both hands and brushed the magic away. Inji stared at him, and Shoto could see the thoughts swirling in his head, growing stronger. And then he said, Very well. He turned without another word and swept away. Shoto waited until Inji disappeared around a corner at the end of the hall before he sagged against the wall, heart hammering and palms sweating. What, he, what had he just agreed to? Agreed to do? To, to spy on the most dangerous man on this side of the world? to slither into that man's court, his bed even, that, no, Shoto wouldn't do that, he would simply refuse, and woe be unto anyone who tried to force him, but, he shook his head and straightened his shoulders again, he would do it because there was no choice because he hadn't been lying to Enji. If Fiyumi went, she'd die. Shoto couldn't lose another sibling. Not again. One was enough. When he went back into the sitting room, Fiyumi and Natsuo were clinging silently to each other, shoulders shaking. They both looked up at Shoto when he came back in, the hope on their faces so obvious. It made up for the disgust and fear and fury swirling in Shoto's chest. He looked Fiumi in the eye and said, You're not going.
Fiumi's eyes got wide and she started sobbing. Natsuo said in disbelief, You... you talked him out of it. She won't have to go? Shoto shook his head. She's not going, he said again. He wanted to keep it at that, but of course he couldn't. Of course they deserved to know. I am. Fiumi looked up at him in shock, going suddenly quiet. Natsuo actually reeled, leaning away from Shoto with his eyes wide and mouth open. Shoto, Fiumi whispered, bringing her hands to her mouth. I'll be fine, Shoto said very quickly. Safer than you, he added, giving her a pointed look. Neither of you should have to go, Natsuo said, vehemently. But that was all he said. All three of them knew once Inji had made up his mind about something, there was no talking him out of it. Someone was infiltrating the innermost circle of the barbarian court under the guise of marriage. And Shoto was Fuyumi's only hope. As far as wedding parties went, this one was a very somber affair. Inji had negotiated to have the nuptials at the border of their two kingdoms, the place where the lush, rolling green fields of Shoto's home collided with the rough, rocky terrain of the outlands. The two parties stood facing each other. On one side, the Todorokis all sat in regal resplendence atop the white horses, a line of well-dressed advisers and nobles behind them, and another three lines of soldiers behind them. On the other side was a milling party of barbarians, some atop horses, some not all staring at the Todoroki's neat arrangement with suspicion. Shoto couldn't see any of them individually, really, but he noticed the way they were dressed. They wore several different styles of barbarian garb, with competing types of ornamentation. This was to be expected, Shoto assumed. The true danger of the barbarian king, Katsuki Bakugo, was the way he had unified the tribes, seeking out, challenging, and beating each tribe leader in combat, one at a time, until he had the whole of the outlands under his control. Before that, he'd never been a real threat to Inji and his reign. But now... Now there were rumblings that the barbarian king wanted to turn his sights east, wanted to prove to the world over that he could conquer more than just a disconnected range of outland tribes. They had been waiting far longer than was typical. Shoto was beginning to think maybe, just maybe, the barbarian king had decided he'd rather start a war than marry Prince Shoto. It was not to be, however. A sudden shadow darkened the sky, and Shoto looked up reflexively. His jaw dropped. Beside him, Fiyumi gasped, and Natsuo's horse startled. They had, of course, heard that King Kotsuki Bakugo had a dragon, but Shoto hadn't actually believed it was true. The beast was enormous and so vividly red it almost hurt to look at it. A huge gust of wind swept over them all as it flapped its wings and began to a slow and careful descent between the two lines of people. All the barbarians were cheering and screaming and whistling and just generally making fools of themselves. The soldiers and nobility on Shoto's side were all looking at each other for direction, faces pinched in uncertain fear. They only stayed because Inji did.
The dragon landed and lowered its head to the ground, revealing a man perched at a spot on its neck. The man leapt up from the beast and landed in a sprightly crouch before straightening up and patting the dragon twice on the head, like it was some kind of faithful dog. It sat there, red eyes trained upon the royal family, and didn't move. And then the barbarian king looked up, and Shoto felt that glance in his very marrow. His eyes scraped over Enji in disdain, that Shoto could see even from here. They lingered on Inji as King Kotsky dusted off his clothing, straightened up, and began to march towards them. Shoto had to fight to keep from gaping. He wasn't armed that Shoto could see, and he was barely even dressed. He was wearing leather pants that tucked into sturdy boots, and he was entirely bare-chested, which, for some reason, made Shoto feel a strange heat in his cheeks. He had beaded necklaces thrown around his neck, black tattoos on his muscled arms, and a red cape with a white fur trim flung over his shoulders. It billowed behind him as he stalked toward the Todorokis, each step heavy and intimidating. Shoto knew, had been told, that the barbarian king was young, was only a few years older than Shoto himself, but that still didn't prepare him for... He hadn't expected him to look... nice, in a way. But he did. He had a rich luster to his messy, unstyled blonde hair, and even twisted up in a scowl, there was something about his face. Shota lifted his chin and swallowed. There was a long, tense moment of silence when King Kotsky reached them. He stopped in front of Inji's horse, looked Inji up and down, and then turned away almost dismissively. There was a rumble of shock that passed through the assembled members of Enji's court, but Shoto couldn't help a little bubble of satisfaction that burst in his belly. It was forgotten forever when the barbarian king turned to Natsuo and pointed. One. He walked down the line until he got to Fiumi. Two. She blushed into her fan, and the barbarian king took a few more steps forward, halting deliberately in front of Shoto's horse. Three. Shoto couldn't help himself. He felt his nostrils flare and his nose wrinkle in disgust as the barbarian king grinned up at him, eyes narrowed in challenge and ill temper. And when he said loudly enough that his voice carried to his own people across the gap, well, you certainly look like a bride. Shoto's cheeks burned. He must have tensed in fury because his horse suddenly spooked a little and he had to pull back on the reins to calm her down. Shoto didn't say anything. He wasn't supposed to say anything. This was supposed to be little more than a negotiation. The terms that had already been agreed upon would be repeated in private by Inji and his king, and this king, and then the wedding would take place. There would be an appropriate amount of pretend celebration, and then the barbarians would take Shoto and leave. That's how things were done. This was all wrong. Get down from there! Shoto stared at him, and that because he truly had no idea what he was supposed to do here, he looked to his father. Inji had his eyes narrowed, but after a brief hesitation, he nodded. Shoto dismounted, his own royal blue cloak fanning out behind him as he did. 
he'd been dressed in his very best regalia, all blue and red and trimmed in gold. He couldn't ever remember being so trussed up. He felt uncomfortably like a pig dressed for a dinner table, like his soft silks were holding him down. He made no difference to this king. He knew he technically should, but he couldn't bring himself to do so much as incline his head. He was taller than the barbarian king by at least a head. That was immensely satisfying. The barbarian king looked up at him and looked him up and down like he was a prize horse, and Shoto wanted to scream and then said, Heard you can fight. Shoto jerked to look at him, unable to keep the shock from his face. Figured it was bullshit, he said, voice like gravel in Shoto's ears. Pretty boy like you. He scoffed. <laughs> Bet you can't even swing a sword. Shoto felt his upper lip began to curl, and he had to fight back a scowl. Do you intend to send me into battle, my lord? He asked quietly, the question so innocuous enough, but Shoto had stacked his tone with every subtle insolence his father had ever been able to beat out of him. Had Enji heard, Shoto's sheer disdain probably would have sent him flying into a temper, but Shoto was fairly certain they were speaking quiet enough that only Fuyumi could hear. She winced. King Kotsky pulled a face. What? Just so I can bury you later? Shoto swallowed, thought of Fuyumi, and managed to calm his simmering fury. Who fucked up your face? Shoto's whole body tensed, raged, spiking into a height that even he knew was dangerous. The king made another rude, disgusted face and said very quietly, Oh, I get it. He's sending you, because no one else will take a busted up second air with half his face gone, right? If I'm going to get a royal whore, shouldn't he at least be pretty? He touched Shoto's hair when he said it, reached out and flicked the fringe that Shoto had grown long and wore in front of his left eye, and at that familiar, taunting touch, Shoto snapped. His fire flared so hot and so fast, his horse reared, and his fancy wedding lively went up in flames. The king vaulted away from him so quickly and made Shoto's head spin, but Shoto didn't care. Shoto was going to murder him right here. The king was laughing. After dodging the initial flare of fire, he just stood perfectly still, chuckled, and Shoto drew up short, chest heaving, and managed to bring his magic down into his hand instead of raging all up his arm like before. And then he became aware that everyone on his side was moving away, drawing weapons, whispering in fear, and everyone on the barbarian side was cheering, shrieking, banging ragged swords against shields, and just generally being celebratory. The king grinned at him and said, Impressive. And then he held up his own hand, and a ball of fire burst into the air and dissolved in a shower of sparks at about shoulder height. That all you got? Shoto scowled, and then he stepped forward with his right foot and sent a sheen of ice crawling along the ground to slick the stones under the king's feet. The barbarians cheered even louder. The dragon roared, and the king just grinned.
before he thrust both hands down by his side and literally blasted the ice at his feet. And Shoto understood then how strong this man was, exactly how true the rumors had been. Shoto could taste the magic like smoke on the air, and magic lived in this man the same way it lived in Shoto. It was strong, dense, powerful. And the way he was looking at Shoto right now, no one had ever looked at Shoto like that before. This man wasn't looking at him with fear like the servants, or disgust, like his father in his court. This was something else. And Shoto felt like a rushing in his ears, like a clenching in his chest. He straightened up, remembered himself and his bearing, and who he was supposed to be. And he reached up to hold the shredded pieces of his waistcoat in place over his exposed chest, shrugging his shoulder to let his cloak fall over his left side as he moved. And then the king turned towards his own people and lifted both hands into the air. The roar of sound they returned was deafening, and the dragon... The beast reared up on his hind legs and flapped his wings so wind rocked the royal party, and Shoto had to hold his cloak to keep it in place from fanning out behind him. The king turned back, that same terrifying grin on his face, and stalked over to Enji. He's acceptable. Shoto felt his temper flare again. But he held it in check this time. Enji was glowering at him in fury, no doubt itching for a chance to make Shoto pay for not playing the demure groom-to-be. Eyes on the ground, hands folded neatly in front of him. Somehow, Shoto thought that wouldn't have been the best approach with the barbarians. It all happened very fast after that. Treaties were reviewed and signed. Ida brought Shoto a new waistcoat and tunic from his things. It wasn't nearly as fancy, but it wasn't burnt to shreds. And then there was a ceremony. That was the strangest of all. Wedding ceremonies were neat, restrained affairs in Inji's kingdom where celebration was meted out in very particular ways at very particular places. But the barbarians yelled and whistled and made fools of themselves through the whole thing. They made such a ruckus at the part where Shoto and King Kotsky finally touched hands so Inji's priest could tie a red silk cord around their wrists that Shoto actually blushed hating the sheer suggestion in their tone. The king, for his part, didn't move at all. He didn't grab Shoto's hand in a show of ownership like Shoto had seen men do before in weddings of convenience. He didn't give Shoto some awful, lecherous leer like Shoto had to fight off when he was younger before his reputation scared would-be suitors away. When Shoto chanced to glance at the king's face, he saw the man staring straight ahead, brows furrowed, and a stern sort of curl to his lips. And then they were declared married. The deed was done. There was cheering, there was food and drink, and the barbarians were far more boisterous than Shoto's family. Inji's people retreated the second it was polite to do so, after gifts had been exchanged and Inji had given some awful speech about the new peace between their kingdoms. But the barbarians kept eating and drinking and dancing far into the night. For the most part, Shoto was able to play ornament here. He didn't want to talk to anybody, especially not his new husband. 
the man he was literally tied to for the remainder of the evening. But there were certain things he couldn't exactly avoid, like when, after everyone had been drinking perhaps slightly more than was advisable, and Shoto was just focused on finishing his food, even though he didn't really have the stomach for it. And no one was looking at them or talking to them for once. The barbarian king leaned into Shoto's space and said in a quiet, gentle voice that made Shoto jerk around and look at him, Honey cake? Shoto stared down at the, of the offered sweet and then back up at the man offering it. There was no disdain in his expression and no taunt. No, thank you, my lord. Shoto replied a little stiffly, trying very hard to see how offering him a sweet meat poised any advantage to the king at all. Katsuki. Shoto blinked. My lord? My name is Katsuki. Stop calling me lord. That's not for you. Shoto was silent for a beat longer than he should have been. Not for me, he said quietly. The king, Kotsky, he rolled his eyes and jerked his chin towards all the revelry. That's for them, not you. Shoto turned back to his plate, certain he was missing something very important. You don't talk much, do you? Shoto looked up sharply. The voice that spoke was a new one, good-natured and cheerful, but pitched low, just for Shoto and Kotsky. The man speaking looked familiar in a way Shoto just couldn't place. He had long, unkempt red hair that spiked out from his head, and when he smiled, all his teeth were sharp and pointed. Shoto didn't see where he had come from, and hadn't noticed him all night, which was strange, because the man was enormous. He had thick arms, broad shoulders. He was at least as tall as Shoto, maybe taller. That's fine, he said quietly. Kotsky probably talks enough for the both of you. Shoto narrowed, narrowed his eyes in shock. Shut up, Kiri. Kotsky growled. <laughs> See what I mean? Kiri just smiled and reached for the honey cake Kotsky had just offered to Shoto. Kotsky snatched it away and said, Hey, fuck you! Kotsky stuffed the cake in his mouth and Shoto just stared at them both. What? Kotsky demanded. You didn't want it. Shoto looked down at his plate and felt a wave of very shameful emotion wash over him. These people were strange. Shoto may have hated his father and hated his reign, but at least there were rules. Regulations Shoto could follow, things he could expect and things he understood. But here, there was a violent, rude, coarse man calling himself a king who offered Shoto sweets, who apparently let his subjects call him by his first name and tease him? Shoto didn't understand it. Let's go to bed. Koski's voice was casual. But the words sent shock and rage coursing through Shoto's chest. He said nothing. Was forced to follow Kotsky into a standing position by the silk still binding them together. Kiri wiggled his eyebrows and said, Ooh, bed is it? Shut up, Kiri! Kotsky groaned. Make yourself useful and guard the camp entrance. He glanced at Shoto. Princely husband or not, I don't trust King shit for brains as far as I can throw him. Mm, 
You could probably throw him kind of far, Carrie said thoughtfully. You know what I mean. Fine, Carrie groaned, and then gave Shoto a very considering look and said, Save some fun for later. Kotsky just rolled his eyes. Kiri bounded off, and Kotsky curled his hand around Shoto's. Come on. Shoto followed him because, well, what choice did he have? His whole body felt too light. It was making him feel sick, feel out of sorts and dizzy. There was a huge tent set up at the back of camp. Shoto looked around, trying to ground himself by keeping track of his surroundings, and realized he hadn't seen Kotsky's dragon since before the wedding ceremony. Where was he hiding such an enormous creature? Kotsky paused outside the tent and looked around a little surreptitiously. Shoto silently looked around, too, and saw a few straggling barbarians watching them with wide grins. Kotsky rolled his eyes, shook, took Shoto's hand, and dragged him into the tent. Shoto found himself balking like a newborn calf as he ducked under the leather curtain. The tent? It was enormous. Big enough that Shoto could stand up straight. It had been stocked with one of Shoto's trunks, and all the gifts that had been sent with him and a huge pile of furs and pillows right in the center. There were torches flickering, warming the air. They must have been spelled because the smoke smelled good, and it was light rather than heavy and cloying. Kotsky wordlessly unbound their wrists and thoughtlessly flung the silk into some corner of the tent. Shoto watched it land and shocked because the silk was important. It was a symbol of their union, and it was... Most couples kept theirs forever. The silk tie that had been used to bind Enji to Shoto's mother had belonged to Enji's great-grandparents. I mean, this one was new, but it was still... Kotsky stomped over to the pile of blankets and pillows and started tearing it apart. Shoto hovered by the door, flames licking at his fingertips from all his nervous energy. Kotsky picked up a huge armful of blankets and kicked a few pillows into the far corner of the tent, and then he shoved the blankets at Shoto. Shoto blinked stupidly at him and accepted the blankets even though he wasn't sure what he was supposed to do with them. Kotsky rolled his eyes. You sleep there, he said firmly, pointing to the pile of pillows. Shoto actually sagged in relief and nodded without argument. He went to the corner and dropped the blankets and then looked around. You don't have chamber servants? He said softly. Kotsky's brows drew together. Fuck is a chamber servant? Shoto's cheeks grew hot. Our clothing laces up the back, he explained. When Kotsky just stared at him, Shoto undid the clip at his throat and shrugged off his cloak. He turned so Kotsky could see all the laces running from neck to waist. Someone has to help undo it. Shoto turned back just in time to see Kotsky roll his eyes and take a step forward. I, I can... But Shoto jerked away from him in alarm, gave himself away, and showed the barbarian just how unwilling Shoto was to be here. Just how unnerved. Just how scared. Kotsky drew up short, eyes flashing, and just stared. Uh, I can do it, Shoto said after a long, silent beat had passed. He certainly wouldn't let Kotsky do it. You want me to summon your servant? Kotsky drawed, crossing his arms over his chest. 
Shoto shook his head. Ida isn't my servant. He's nobility. He's my knight. Of course, Ida had cheerfully retrieved a new waistcoat for Shoto in the first place. He was so damn eager to serve, he probably wouldn't bat an eye at helping Shoto out of his outer clothes. Kotsky stared, unmoving, and after Shoto realized he wasn't planning on going anywhere, he cast his eyes to a place near Kotsky's feet and squirmed an arm behind his back to pick at the laces. He was aware of every passing second that Kotsky was staring at him. He could only pick the laces enough to loosen them, and after he'd pulled at them until he was going to get them any looser, he wiggled out of the waistcoat by passing it over his head. And that was enough, he decided. He took his boots off and tugged one of the blankets Kosky had given him around his shoulders and settled down over the pillows he still, still in his tunic and wedding breeches. He watched Kotsky the whole time, like the other man was a wildcat who might pounce on him at any moment. Maybe he looked unnerved, wide-eyed, and anxious, because Kotsky loosed one disdainful huff of a laugh and turned on his back, looking away from Shoto when he kicked out of his own boots. He didn't look at Shoto again that night. But Shoto could feel annoyance and maybe even anger flowing from him well into the night. Shoto didn't really sleep. He couldn't have, even if he wanted to. It was very late, and the camp had gone finally silent when Shoto realized he wasn't going home. If not ever, then at least not for a very long time. Fiyumi was safe. Natsuo was safe. Shoto hadn't even gotten to say goodbye. Shoto must have slept a little, because he blinked and found Ida staring at him, sunlight streaming in through a crack in the tent canvas. Your Highness. Shoto blinked and sat up on his awful pile of pillows and blankets and looked around before he muttered, what are you doing here? Ida furrowed his brows and looked down at Shoto quite sternly. His Majesty, King Kotsky, requested I wake you, sir. He suggested you might need assistance. Ida spoke slowly and carefully, and the reason why came to Shoto quickly. However, Kotsky had ordered Ida into this tent. It had not nearly been so rude and polite as all that. Shoto sighed a little and let the blanket fall from his shoulders. Ida furrowed his brows again and said very quietly, You slept in your wedding clothes, Shoto? Shoto pinched his eyes closed. Ida never called him by his first name. He was possibly the only person in the world Shoto might consider friend, and Shoto could only remember him using Shoto's name without a title or honorific attached maybe three times before. They had all been times when Shoto could read the worry written on Ida's face like text. Shoto shoved the blankets aside and whispered, I may be little more than a war prize at this point, but I still have some pride, Ida. Ida frowned. Uh, of course, your highness. I'm sorry to ask, Shoto said with a sigh, finally standing from his pillows. But will you help me dress? These rock dwellers have no idea how proper clothing works. Ida nodded and gave Shoto a small smile. Certainly, sir. Shoto felt more like himself when he emerged from the tent in his more usual garb. When Toya had been executed, Shoto had taken to dressing in black exclusively. 
an underhanded jab at his father that earned him pity from the upper nobility rather than disdain. Poor boy, mourning a traitor. Too grief-stricken to see the eldest heir hadn't been worth missing. Inji couldn't demand Shoto dress in regal fashion without admitting how much Shoto's wordless protest irked him, and since he'd played at reluctance throughout the whole thing, acted as if Toya had backed him into a corner, as if he'd had to burn his own son to death in the palace square. He couldn't risk forcing Shoto into normal clothing without appearing the cruel and callous man that he actually was. So Shoto wore black. Black silk, black wool, black leather so soft and fine it was like cream between his fingers. But black, always black. He chose traveling clothes since he assumed they wouldn't linger on the border, and these were simpler than his wedding regalia, more form-fitting and less ornamented. Aside from the quality of the cloth of the tunic and waistcoat, the hide of the breeches, only stitched silver trim gave him away as royalty. It was colder outside the tent than Shoto thoughtlessly, heated the air around him before he looked around at the barbarian horde. They were breaking down the camp, tearing down tents, packing saddlebags. They did so with an air of frivolity that surprised Shoto. He forgot anyone might have, might have something to feel happy about when he was sunk so low in misery. He was alone in that too, he supposed. The barbarian servants didn't seem to pay him much attention, except to offer him kind smiles or lecherous stares that made his skin crawl with suggestion. Ida stayed close beside him, and Shoto tried to think that it mattered, that one friend was better than none, that he wasn't simply wrecking Ida's life too by dragging him along. They hovered awkwardly by the king's tent until some servants came and started breaking it down. Shoto found himself annoyed. He'd known he was leaving one king for another, who was hardly any better. Some part of him had hoped the knot between his shoulder blades might loosen a bit, without Inji's constant presence looming over him. But of course, that had been little more than a foolish wish. No, he had expected Kotsky to be cruel. What he had not expected was to be fully ignored. He had prepared himself for insults, for underhanded jabs and taunts, for being bullied into the role of a silent specter of a house. He'd prepared himself to fight off physical advances, and though he was loath to admit it to himself, in the moment that he'd seen Kotsky for the first time, he'd even had the passing thought that he might be willing to slither into his husband's good graces after all, if he was as contemptible as Shoto had thought, and if doing so would earn Shoto the leverage he needed to topple this empire and return home, perhaps a hero, or perhaps playing the role of grieving widower. Either way. Shoto was used to being insulted and degraded, and he was used to being admired and lusted after. He was even used to being pitied. He was not at all used to being ignored. The king's tent was almost completely destroyed, and Shoto's things were being loaded into a wagon when Shoto heard a commotion coming from the center of camp where they had celebrated the night before. And because he wasn't sure what else he was supposed to do, Shoto wandered over, Ida right behind him. He found Kotsky and his red dragon, and a crowd of cheerful people pressing around to either touch the dragon or to touch Kotsky. Kotsky, for his part, tolerated all of it fairly well. He clasped his hands with his people, 
playfully shoved a few of them on the shoulder and glared and insulted a few more. Shoto didn't understand. Enji would never let the upper nobility talk to and touch him like this. And Shoto even wasn't even sure why Kozuki's people wanted to. The fierce, manic expression on his face seemed dangerous. But these people didn't seem to care at all. Shoto took a step forward without meaning to, perhaps trying to hear what was being said. And in so doing, he bumped someone at the edge of the crowd. And when that person saw him, he touched the woman in front of him, and she touched another, and another, and another. Silence spread out like a ripple, consumed the crowd, until they were all turning and looking at Shoto. A strange, expectant hush settling over all of them. Kotsky looked up, saw Shoto standing there, and Shoto saw his face shudder. It was the first time Shoto could remember that no one was looking at Kotsky, and in that moment, Shoto saw the face, his face change, saw that manic smile fall to be replaced by something more serious. Kotsky glanced to either side of himself as if trying to decide what to do, and then he held out his hand. Shoto stood very still and realized there was leather fixed to the dragon's back. Some kind of sling, perhaps, that fastened around its neck. Kotsky was standing on the beast's foot, one hand tangled in the leather sling, clearly about to mount. Shoto actually took a step backwards. Kotsky rolled his fierce eyes. It's a week's ride to the castle on horse. You can go with them if you want, but I'm leaving. The feeling in the crowd of people watching them shifted, became charged. Kotsky added, It's half a day this way. And Shoto wouldn't have called his voice kind or gentle, but it was softer in a way. A little less like the hard crunch of gravel. It was a choice, the first of many, that he would face, to fight or to bend, to protect himself or to swim deeper for the sake of his people. He was here for one reason and one reason only. He had one task. Earn the trust of the barbarian king, Kotsky Bakugo, and find the loose stone that could tumble an empire. Inji wanted the Outlands, and Shoto was the key that would unlock the whole thing. Shoto chose to dive. He didn't say anything to Ida, didn't say anything to anyone. He just started to walk. Slower at first, and then faster. Kotsky climbed on to his dragon's neck, and then reached out again. Shoto took his hand, heart in his throat, and head full of doubts and disbelief. Kotsky's hand was warmer than Shoto expected, and rough and calloused like a servant's. And strong. Gods, but was he strong. He hoisted Shoto up behind him like Shoto weighed no more than a child, and Shoto felt his cheeks burn when he realized the only way to ride a bloody dragon with the king of the Outlands was to wrap his legs around Kotsky's hips and his arms around his waist. The leather sling did little more than cup Shoto's low back to keep him from sliding down the the slick, stone-like scales. Kotsky sounded horribly amused when he said, You'll have to hold on tighter than that, pretty boy. Shoto didn't have time to respond. The dragon was suddenly moving, long neck lifting from the earth, stretching toward the sky, and Shoto fell back in the sling, Kotsky's firm weight pinning him to the leather. 
He tightened his arms in sudden panic, and when those massive wings were flapping and the ground was dropping away, and Shoto thought he might just be the stupidest Todoroki to ever live. For one shameful moment, and that seemed to stretch into a lifetime, Shoto's shock and fear controlled him, and he squeezed his arms, clung to Kotsky's back. Koski tolerated the contact, and then the dragon stopped its climb and leveled out. Koski's weight came off of Shoto's hips, and he felt more like he was sitting atop the creature rather than a moment away from tumbling off of it. Koski elbowed him in the ribs. Ease up. Koski looked back as Shoto let go completely, shock from the contact and the fact that he was flying, making him admittedly a little stupid. He teetered a bit. Kotsky steadied him with a hand on his knee that took away the second Shoto regained his balance. And then Shoto's heart jumped into his throat again because Kotsky was moving. He performed a very dexterous little twist, and he was facing Shoto. Leaning back against his dragon's neck with his arms crossed smugly over his chest and his feet on either side of Shoto's hips. Shoto stared at him, leaning back in the sling, and then shivered. Kotsky's smug smirk wavered a little, and Shoto saw his eyes drop to Shoto's chest. He frowned, his hands curled a little in the heavy, fur-lined cloak he was wearing. Shoto warmed the air around him again, killing the chill prickle in his skin before he could think too hard about what Kotsky had been intending to do with that robe. Kotsky's face changed a little. Hmm, good trick, that. The wind was loud and high, loud this high up, but Shoto and Kotsky seemed to escond it in a little pocket of stiller air formed by the way the dragon bent its neck and shrugged its shoulders to keep its rings, wings raised. If Shoto didn't look down, it was more comfortable than he expected, and steadier. You can't do that, too? Shoto asked. Kotsky shook his head. Mm, my magic is more like a spark than a candle flame. Shoto frowned at him and said pointedly, It explodes. It doesn't burn. Shoto nodded. He was riding a dragon. With the king of the Outlands who was also his husband. Right. Alone at last, Kotsky said, bending one knee a little and letting the other leg dangle off the dragon's neck. Shoto felt heat spring to his cheeks and he stared at the stony scale by his hand. We were alone last night. Kotsky scoffed. As if your dear old dad doesn't have ears and eyes in all the right places. He signed a treaty, Shoto protested. He wants peace. Kotsky chuckled and looked out over the rocky landscape that Shoto could only handle seeing out of the corner of his eyes. <laughs> we'll see about that. Shoto frowned. Why agree to... If you don't think. Kotsky's lip quirked once, but instead of answering the question, he said, Why did you? Shoto dropped his eyes to his hands. Why, why, why? He never expected to be asked this. What was the proper answer? The answer that would be expected, that would flatter and charm as well as deflect. The answer when it came, churned his stomach. It's a great honor, he said, to serve my country and her people with this union. Kotsky considered him in silence, an odd look on his face. 
Right. He stared at Shoto. Shoto stared at his hand some more. If that was the only reason, Koski said eventually, why not your sister? Shoto looked at him too quickly, temper flaring. She's the obvious choice, Koski drawled, if your father was looking to offload of one of you brats. Would you have preferred her? Shoto snapped. His hands felt wet, and he realized he was calling frost to his fingertips and melting it with the bubble of heat he was already calling to existence. I'm sorry to disappoint. The way Kotsky's grin suddenly sharpened into pointed, vindicted amusement told Shoto the sarcasm in his words hadn't been missed, and in fact, he had probably revealed more than he meant to. But instead of pressing on him, Koski lifted his chin and said, Who did that to your face, really? Really? My informants, the ones I've got nestled in all the little corners of your daddy's pretty little palace, they only gave me shitty fucking rumor on that. Shoto's surprise must have shown on his face because Kotsky said, You really think I'd let you into my home without checking up on your ass first? Something about the phrasing stuck out for Shoto. My home. Not Kotsky's kingdom, or his bed, or his confidences. His home. Shoto didn't know quite why, but it was strange. Too familiar, too human, too soft. My bet's on dear old dad, Kotsky said with a vicious grin. Maybe a warning. Taught you a lesson early on? Your big brother never learned, hmm? You shut your filthy fucking mouth. Shoto hissed the words before he knew what he was speaking, before he could consider how foolish they were and how much they really said. So he knows a few curses after all, Kotsky repeated blithely, was beginning to think you only know how to talk in pretty empty platitudes. Shoto's jaw slid. My brother was a filthy traitor. Shoto replied in a dead, hollow voice. His, he held his left wrist with his right, used the bite of ice against his skin to ground himself. I don't like to talk about him. And then, because Kotsky was opening his mouth again, and Shoto suddenly couldn't bear to hear him speak, he said, My mother did it. Kotsky's mouth closed. She was sick. She didn't mean it. And then, because Kotsky still wasn't responding, and Shoto hated the awful, pregnant silence, he added, It was a long time ago. Kotsky studied Shoto with narrowed eyes, and Shoto didn't look at him. Just peered over the brown, mountainous terrain. Looking at the ground was better than looking at Kotsky. A shift in motion made his eyes jump back to Kotsky's face. The king leaned forward, motion deliberate and broadcast, and slower than Shoto thought it had to be. Shoto saw him coming, so he couldn't flinch, just watched Kotsky's hand. Shoto went incredibly, painfully still when Kotsky touched his hair again like he had yesterday when he'd first laid eyes on Shoto, except this time he wasn't taunting. He brushed the hair aside so Shoto was suddenly looking back at Kotsky without his view obstructed by a shock of red hair. In my kingdom, Kotsky said very deliberately, we don't hide our scars. Shoto leaned away carefully, pulled himself out of Kotsky's reach without jerking back. 
He didn't want to be touched. But nor did he want Kotsky thinking he was afraid of being touched. The words spiked through Shoto like a taunt, though he knew he hadn't intended that way. Because Kotsky didn't have splotchy red burn scars wringing one eye in a way that he could never fully hide no matter how long he grew his hair. It would take a mask to fully cover the evidence of Shoto's mother's feeble mind and violent break with reality. Kotsky didn't have anything like that. He had some scars on his chest, thin lines raised where maybe he had caught an assassin's blade, but he could cover his chest. Kotsky was staring at him, and Shoto wasn't speaking. He went on not speaking for a long time. Your wrist is turning purple. Shoto furrowed his brows and looked down, and when he did, he found fingerprints chilled into the skin of his wrist. He pulled his hand away, realized, despite conjuring warm air around, all around him, he still managed to make his arm go numb with cold. So he met Kotsky's eyes and flooded his skin with heat. It hurt at first, the fire cutting through the pins and needles chill. But maybe Shoto liked the pain, needed it even. The air got a little warmer, and Shoto's arm turned red, the cold finger marks going white for a moment. Never heard of someone with magic like yours, Kotsky said, staring at Shoto's hands. Kotsky's voice was casual, and Shoto saw through him. He had thought to, a to tempt Kotsky with the promise of a powerful husband, and he'd succeeded. That's all this was. Shoto had left the hands of one master simply to be snatched up by another. He was a weapon, pinned between two kings who both wanted his alliance and his strength. My father hoped to honor your strength, Shoto told him, by offering you mine. Kotsky's grin sharpened again. You know something, pretty boy? Shoto swallowed and held his tongue, not liking the sudden chill in Kotsky's tone. Ass-kissing looks real ugly on ya. Shoto actually bit the inside of his cheek to keep from glaring or protesting or cursing. Find someone with only half a brain to buy your fucking flattery, cause I don't need it. And then he shifted suddenly, turned over and put his back to Shoto. He didn't speak again. End chapter one.